Well, welcome to everyone joining the webinar. Um, we'll be started in about two minutes. So um, we should have the slides up on the screen. Um, and then we will get started. Which reminds me, I need to put the handout in the chat so you can download that. I will do that right now. All right, you should be able to see the um, presentation handout as a PDF in the chat, so you can download that. Well, let's go ahead and get started with the webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB, and thank you for joining us today uh, for the first session of the Fall Journal Club. Um, so far, we have six sessions planned, and the theme of our fall series is the best of JNEB, Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior. Um, today, our authors, our presenters are the authors of uh, what was named the best paper of, of this year. So uh, they had recognition during the annual conference, but we're excited that they're going to share their work and um, present uh, more information for us today. So to get us uh, started with some housekeeping, I did put the handout in the chat, so you should be able to download that PDF and follow along. Um, I've also turned on the transcription option, if that is helpful for you as you watch the presentation. Uh, we'll take questions at the end. Uh, so throughout the presentation, if you type those questions into the question block, uh, we'll moderate those to the panelists. Um, and then I've turned on the chat feature. Um, so if you need to send a technical request, um, something you're not hearing or seeing, please uh, send that to me and um, we'll get that worked out. Uh, at the end of the webinar today, you'll be prompted to complete a short survey. Uh, appreciate your feedback on this session, as well as any ideas for future webinars. Um, and then we are recording today. 
So watch for an email follow-up, um, should be out in the next day or so, that'll include a link to the recording, uh, the handout, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. So I will turn things over to um, our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, who's the teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. And once again, Kristen has helped organize the uh, Journal Club series. We're in our 20th year and definitely appreciate her help. Thank you, Rachel. Today we have two speakers and I'm excited to get to introduce them. Cheryl Hughes is a professor in pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. Her background is in developmental psychology and she has used this expertise to examine environmental influences on the development of childhood obesity in families with low income backgrounds. Dr. Hughes has developed prevention programs with a focus on enhancing appetite regulation in children in order to reduce obesity. Thomas Power is a professor emeritus in the Department of Human Development at Washington State University. Dr. Power has spent 40 years studying parenting and its influence on child development. He is currently applying this knowledge to the role of parent in the socialization of health, promoting, and compromising behaviors in children. Today, they're sharing their paper um, and their work in 12-month efficacy of an obesity prevention program targeting Hispanic families with preschoolers from low-income backgrounds. I want to thank them both for sharing their time and their expertise with us today. And at this point, I can pass it over to our presenters. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Cheryl Hughes, and I'm a professor at Baylor College of Medicine. Tom and I are going to present today, uh, as mentioned, on the 12-month follow-up of our obesity prevention program uh, with Hispanic um, low-income families. It's not advancing. Somehow, it's not advancing. I'm not sure what's happening. All right, hold on. I'll stop. I'll stop touching it. Now let's try it again. Okay. Nope. Uh, we had it working. Oh, it, oh here we go. Maybe it's okay. just a delay. Okay. <clears throat> okay. We had um, uh, a number of authors on this paper that was published in SNEB. Um, a number of people who helped uh, develop uh, the program from Washington State University. Um, also from North Carolina State University, one person, Susan Johnson from uh, University of Colorado Medical Campus, and a number of people from Baylor who helped uh, to collect data on this project. I don't know why it's not, it's not advancing. Do you want me to just tell you, Rachel? Or it's just slow? Okay, um, we had no conflicts of interest. Um, this uh, research was supported by funds from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and we received this grant in 2011. Okay, uh, in terms of essential practice competencies, 12.1.1 uh, advocates for and promotes food and nutrition, nutrition programs, et cetera. 12.3.2 applies community-based uh, models and theories in the development of interventions. And 12.3.4 uh, collaborates with community partners. Uh, so to back up a bit, um, this program was developed around um, eating socialization of children. 
and eating socialization describes the process by which children learn to eat in their families, including when, where, and what to eat, and uh, teaching parents the best practices to support this learning process may promote healthy uh, weight among young children. Okay, so this brings us to the strategies for effective eating development called SEEDS. Um, the overall goal here was to develop an efficacious childhood obesity program targeting child appetite regulation and exposure to novel foods, as well as teaching uh, parents the best feeding strategies that support these constructs. Our long-term goal, however, was to reduce overweight and obesity in young children. So once again, primary focus was appetite regulation. Appetite regulation is teaching children to pay attention to their own feelings of hunger and fullness. And the secondary focus was uh, exposure to new foods, that is teaching children to prefer health, healthier foods such as vegetables. And uh, as a part of this, teaching parents to support these constructs. Okay, so, um, uh, Vaughn et al. This, uh, came up with a concept, conceptual model based on experts, and this was published in Nutrition Reviews in 2016. And experts categorized, categorized uh, known feeding practices into second-order constructs. And the idea behind this was uh, to teach parents to promote structure, that is, the organization of the environment to facilitate children's eating competence, uh, supporting autonomy-supportive, uh, behaviors in children, promoting psychological autonomy, and uh, reducing coercive controlling type practices such as pressure to eat, intrusiveness, and dominance uh, when it comes to children's eating. Okay, so what influences food preferences? So we also know that uh, as children grow, um, they tend to reject foods that are uh, not sweet and savory, such as vegetables. And through a number of uh, studies uh, developed by Birch and her colleague, we have found that it takes eight to 10 or 12 or more um, exposures for children to learn to accept new foods. So based on this, we felt like it was important to include these uh, as we developed our obesity prevention program. So the implications for our intervention program was that evidence exists that children have an innate ability to regulate uh, their appetite and also that multiple exposures can help children prefer uh, vegetables, um, things that they may reject early on and that structured and autonomy supportive feeding practices can actually help children to achieve um, our better self-regulation and come to prefer uh, novel foods. Okay, so this brings us to our program called Strategies for, for Effective Eating, uh, better known as SEEDS. Okay. So to back up a bit, um, one of our co-investigators, Susan Johnson, had developed 
uh, a very small intervention uh, study back that was published in pediatrics in 2000. And she was teaching uh, preschoolers to recognize their internal cues of hunger and fullness. So in her small program, uh, it was a six week program implemented at preschool, uh, the children participated in um, activities uh, around this construct. And what Susan did, she used pre preload protocols to measure children's ability to regulate their eating before and after their intervention program. And what she did find was that children were able to improve their ability to recognize and respond to internal cues of hunger and fullness. So um, we actually used this as uh, kind of a basis for the child um, uh, sessions that we developed as part of our program. Okay, so the program structure and content. We uh, have seven sessions, groups of eight to 10 families. Uh, parents and children attended separate sessions and then came back together for a family session. Uh, the parent sessions targeted five content areas in addition to introduction and review uh, sessions and the children uh, focused on two things, internal cues of fullness and promotion of new foods and food exploration. Okay, parent sessions. So the five um, areas we targeted were internal cues of hunger and fullness, promotion of new foods, portion sizes, structure of the outside environment and structuring the home environment. As a part of this, uh, we had uh, professionally developed fun and engaging videos that enhanced the curriculum and also were able to encourage discussion among the parents uh, during their sessions. Uh, and these were related to the content areas that I just mentioned. <coughs> so in the child sessions, as I mentioned, we uh, looked at internal cues of hunger and fullness. Uh, pictured here are some dolls that we developed. This was similar to what Susan Johnson did in her program. <coughs> and uh, the facilitators used these dolls to help children to in internalize what it meant to be um, hungry or full. In terms of promotion of new foods, we introduced different foods um, each week um, using a tasting method that was developed for young children. And we used stories and games uh, in order to help the children learn to describe their experiences um, around these new foods and also around the internal cues of hunger and fullness. <clears throat> Family sessions, um, after the parents and children attended their own sessions, they came back together. Uh, we provided a healthy meal and uh, parents and children could discuss what they learned <coughs> and also bond it, um, with their facilitators and other members of their group. Okay, so this brings us to the multi-site cluster randomized controlled trial. Okay, so um, we had 255 Hispanic families, 136 prevention and 119 control. Uh, average of eight to 10 families um, were uh, randomized to either prevention or control. Total of 14 waves, uh, six waves in Houston and eight waves in Pasco. And families were uh, paid for assessments only at pre-test, post-test, six-month follow-up, and 12-month follow-up. Uh, 
so what I'm going to do here, um, I'm going to show you two examples from, um, they're from video nine, and this was associated with the session around structure of the outside influences. Uh, the idea was, um, I'm going to show you one about a drive-through scene and another one about eating away from home uh, displays on the street, um, events, etc. Okay. Yes. Mm, not hearing the sound. Hang on a second. Let me see if I can get the audio to share. Okay. <clears throat> Um, let me do this. Let me try again. I can hear the video and it's very cute. So that's why I was going <laughs> to make sure you yes, can yes. hear it. <laughs> Why it's not letting me pick the audio share. Well, hang on. So let me. I can just basically tell you what's happening here, uh, if that helps, Rachel. Sure. Okay, so um, if you want to just go ahead and, and do it without the sound. This mother is uh, in a drive-through. Her children are hungry. They're overstimulated. She's trying really hard to um, talk to the, the thing on the outside to tell them what she wants. The kids are acting up. Um, they're acting crazy. She's tired. As you can see, the kids are like going nuts. And the idea behind this was to teach parents that, number one, it's difficult to take kids through a drive-through when they're um, overstimulated and hungry. And it's just going to exhaust you. So you better be prepared if you want to go through a drive-through with your kids. You just need to be prepared for this and probably not do it when the kids are overstimulated. So that was um, the basis of this one. <clears throat> the other one, this one, um, if you want to go ahead. Um, so this just kind of shows you what children see when they're in the car with you. And if you've ever like noticed, there are a lot of uh, signs about food out on the street when you're driving down the street. Um, in this, uh, the children end up at Penguin Pete's. Uh, it's really cute because he's basically trying to explain to them all the supersizing the kids can do, the additional ice cream that they can eat, which you'll see in just a minute. And the idea is you 
probably need to be aware of this before you take your kids to a food, <laughs> you know, a fast food establishment and, and probably set some boundaries with the kids. There's the ice cream um, that is supersizing. Um, so anyway, it's just the idea is to teach parents to be aware and to plan before they take their kids out. These are outside influences that the kids are perceiving. Okay, uh, so this brings us to the overall assessments. Um, we had three separate questionnaires uh, examining uh, parental feeding, five measures for child eating behaviors. These included both questionnaires and tasks. And then we also uh, took heights and weights on the children so we could calculate BMIZ scores for our distal outcome. Uh, Specifically, the feeding measures include the, the food parenting inventory, the FPI, the uh, caregiver's feeding styles questionnaire, the CFSQ, and a feeding knowledge questionnaire that was developed specifically for this study uh, to test what parents learned um, in, the, in the sessions. The food parenting inventory uh, it can be categorized into three higher order constructs. Um, these were developed to be similar to the constructs in the Vaughn et al. conceptual model that I mentioned earlier. Uh, one was encouraging trying new foods. <clears throat> the second one was mealtime structure. And the third one was external control. There are multiple uh, subscales under each of this. The external control was uh, set to mirror uh, corset control, things like pressure to eat restriction, et cetera. Um, the CFSQ, uh, we developed this in 2005. Um, parents are categorized into uh, four feeding categories. This was developed basically uh, to be similar to general parenting styles using the same framework. And the scores on the CFSQ have been um, consistently associated with uh, uh, child weight across multiple studies, uh, the indulgent being associated with higher child weight. Um, in these ethnic groups. <clears throat> Feeding knowledge questionnaire. Uh, this was developed specific, specifically for uh, this trial. Um, we have um, scores on common misconceptions about feeding, best practices in feeding, efficacy for uh, feeding the child both home and away, and other appropriate content like parent and child roles and presenting um, new foods. <clears throat> Okay, when it comes to eating measures, we had five child eating measures. Three of these are uh, were observational tasks and two were questionnaires. And um, I'm gonna go through each of these just briefly so you know what we were measuring. So the three observational tasks include compensation trials. In uh, these kind of trials, the child consumes a preload, um, over two days, we do this on two day, separate days, they either get a high or a low energy uh, preload, and then um, we have them, um, uh, uh, we give them a, a meal, um, eat into fullness, and then appetite regulation is derived from the extent to which the child adjusts his or her intake um, across the occasions. Eating in the absence of hunger is a well-known task developed by Jenny Fisher. Uh, the child consumes a, a meal, once again, eaten to fullness, and then they're given sweet and savory snacks and age-appropriate toys. The idea is they, they can do whatever they want to for the 10 minutes. 
and the scores reflect calories eaten in absence of hunger, higher scores reflecting poor appetite uh, regulation. Uh, tasting panel. This was developed by Sullivan and Birch, and the children uh, are given small portions of food, um, and then we have observers uh, record uh, exploration, uh, things such as smelling and licking, and also the children spitting it out. And the idea behind this is uh, children are either refusers or non-refusers. Idea of moving the refusers to the non-refusal category um, based on the prevention program. Questionnaires. We have two questionnaires, the uh, CEBQ, which is a very well-known um, questionnaire of uh, child eating behaviors. Um, it can be uh, categorized into approach and food avoidance. Um, this, is, this questionnaire has, has been used repeatedly um, across multiple age groups and ethnicities. The food preferences questionnaire um, is a parent report tool that included over 100 food and drink items. Uh, the idea is that the children um, are scored on never tried, tried and liked it, or tried and did not like it. Okay, at this point, um, I'm going to turn this over to Tom, my colleague, who did all the statistical analysis. He's going to talk about the analyses, the result, and the interpretation of our results. Tom. And so since the, um, the families were... Or you know, the families were nested within classes. We use multi-level modeling. So you can look at, you know, <clears throat> individuals within classes, within conditions. Um, so we did in over time. So three levels in the analysis, you know, we covariate out child age, gender, and the child's BMI. Z-score, you know, assessed at the first time point. Um, <clears throat> we did the program in two locations that Cheryl mentioned, um, but because there's only two locations, we couldn't treat that as a, as a as a random effects variable. So we just did some analyses to see if there are any um, location differences or if, it, or if there are moderation effects of location. And then to, because we're doing multiple tests, we adjusted um, the significance level. We divided you know, for each domain to measure, like, you know, like the measure had, um, had four you know, measure, well, how should I say? If, if like a questionnaire had four measures, then we would divide 0.05 by the number of uh, uh, measures in that questionnaire. So, but with the, the um, significance level being 0.05. Go ahead, Sean. So in terms of the descriptive statistics or sample, as um, Cheryl said, they were all um, Hispanic, um, a large percentage is on the, the uh, <laughs> I think a large percentage are first generation. Um, actually, they're all Spanish speaking. Um, so you can see that most of them had um, less than a high school education or a high school education. Um, most were married. Um, most um, were not employed outside the home and they were in their um, you know, average age was 33. And children, you know, half male and female. Um, and we had, uh, so you can see almost 40% of the children are either overweight or obese, which is typical in this population. Um, and the age was, um, these were kids recruited, you know, through Head Start and similar programs. So most of the kids were about four years old, four or five. So we did some preliminary analyses just to, um, to see, 
uh, you know, looking first at retention. Um, and despite the fact we did multiple things to sort of um, keep track of these families and keep them in the study, you know, they're low income, they're geographically mobile. And um, so we had, you know, some, uh, we had 84% at post-test, which means at the end of all the classes. And then six months, we had 66%. And at um, 12 months, we had 61%. Um, we <clears throat> did the analysis, for the analyses, we, the main analyses, we wanted to actually look at mothers who had data at all four time points. So we compared those who had data at all four time points with those who did not, and we showed no differences um, on the demographic of the pretest variables. So we, at least in terms of variables we assessed, we didn't have a differential dropout. The uh, interclass correlation, so that's the average correlation of people within a class or within, you know, a, you know, a set of moms in the same classroom. Um, they were pretty low, they ranged from zero to 0.10. Um, those are the kinds of correlations that can influence your results so um, and can bias your results. So it's important to control for them. That's why we do the multi-level modeling. We still did it, even though the correlations were low. I see the mean correlation is only 0.1, um, which means the mothers within classes weren't that similar, um, but still we wanted to control for that. And um, it's better to control than not control. Um, as you can see, the average mom saw, attended five of the seven lessons. Um, 35% um, attended them all, and you can see uh, only 5% was zero to three. So we had pretty good attendance. Mothers really enjoyed the classes and um, enjoyed the opportunity to get together and talk about the kids. I think that's something to do with our facilitators. They did a fantastic job. Um, so the feeding prize. So I'm going to go through the different outcomes. And, um, so let's do the food pairing um, inventory first. And so what's plotted here, and this is what all the, the graphs are, is that we have pre-test, post-test, six months to 12 months. <clears throat> the um, prevention group is blue line and the control group is, I'm not sure color it is, brown, orange. <laughs> I have four color names, you know, <laughs> typical male something. <laughs> but uh, as you can see, the control didn't change over time um, in terms of this is the degree to which mothers encourage exploration of new foods. As you can see, the prevention group, um, they reported Increasing that from pretest to post-test, and then that stayed um, that was consistent, stayed at that level at six and twelve months. And then repeated presentation of new foods. As Cheryl said, one of the things we did was teach them you need to present new foods, especially you know bitter ones or sour ones, multiple times for kids may even accept because it's foods that look funny. You have to you know present them multiple times for kids may accept them. And you can see that um, the control didn't change over time. Pre-tests, the um, prevention went up from pre-test to post-test and stayed. Went down a little bit, but that wasn't a significant drop. They, they stayed high, significantly higher um, at six and 12 months. Uh, Served measured portion. So what we did was uh, at the time that we first uh, developed seeds, there were some recommendations that a good kind of rule of thumb to use with preschool children was to give them a, it was a tablespoon or teaspoon, I can't remember, a tablespoon of, of um, food for a year of age. So if they're three, they got three years old, they got three tablespoons or four, they got four. So we taught them about, you know, giving their children measured portions and you could see that went up for the uh, prevention group only and was uh, maintained over time. Child involved in food preparation, um, 
that one actually, my notes here. Yeah, so so that one went up from, so this is, you know, we encourage the, you know, preschoolers can't do a whole lot to help in terms of preparing meals, but they can do little things like, you know, helping wash the vegetables or putting things in a pan or things like that. Um, and, you know, getting children involved is a good way to get um, them to actually exposure to the food and increase their interest in, in healthy food. So um, we did see an increase from pretest to post-test. It was significant at six months. At 12 months, actually, it, it um, dropped off. Uh, not so much that it dropped off, it was the uh, control group went up a little bit. There was, it was non-significant at, at 12 months. Responsiveness to children's fullness cues. So this is the degree to which mothers, if the child said they were full, they would stop trying to get them to eat more food. You know, because most of us <laughs> grew up in families where like clear your plate, you know, eat all your food. And, and um, that sort of overrides children's uh, attention to their fullness cues. So we want them to, you know, the, the mothers to respond positively to the children, um, things they say about how, how full they are. And so mothers did increase from pre to post tests and that remained significant over time. So there were three, um, so we also did, you know, we initially done a paper, we looked just at pre and post tests and before we did the six and 12 month follow-ups. And um, we found three other effects that were significant for pre to post um, but we're not significant in this particular analysis. But I just want to look to see if, you know, what happened with those three variables. So the, those are listed here. So we'll go to the next slide show, we'll see. Um, so you can see the uh, prevention group um, in terms of offering new foods. So this is um, the, uh, the degree to which they offer new foods. That increased from pre-testable to support prevention and increased for the controls a little bit as well, but not enough to, but the difference was significant. But as you can see, at six months, um, there was a non-significant difference. And at 12 months, even though it looks like a difference, there was a lot of variability. And so that wasn't significant either. So basically we had pre to post test increase, but then largely due to the control group increasing, uh, that difference went on. Food as a reward. So this is the degree to which parents use food as a reward. Again, something to encourage them not to do, to do less often because, you know, this, um, you know, <clears throat> this instrumental feeding is actually works against them becoming sensitive and responsive to their internal cues of fullness and all that. Um, and you could see that for the prevention group, it went down from pre to post tests, but then it sort of went to some intermediate level. And the controls went down a little bit as well. And so again, this was not significant at six and 12 months. And then the final one was pressure to eat. Again, this is, this is the opposite of responses to fullness cues. This is trying to get the children to eat when they say they're done or they say they're full or whatever. And you can see that we had a decrease from pre to post for the prevention group, um, but then they kind of went up to a, a mid-level and the uh, controls went down. So again, we didn't have six and 12 month effects. So for all three variables, even though we had significant effects from pre to post, those went away by six to 12 months, largely because the controls were changing. Okay, in terms of the feeding styles, this is the feeding styles question that, that Cheryl talked about. Um, so this measures, as Cheryl said, two dimensions, responsiveness and demandness. Responsiveness is the degree to which parents use child-centered techniques versus adult-centered techniques to get the kids to, to eat. So they're being responsive to the child's you know, behavior. Um, and you can see that that increased from pre-test to post-test. And wait, where's my, I have a little notes here. 
Yeah, and it continued to be significant. Um, wait, no, I'm sorry. Ah, responsiveness. Oh, here it is. Wait. I just can't. Oh, I guess I didn't print that one out. Oops. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so it increased from pre test to post test and then uh, continued to be, I think that it's significant in 12 months. It definitely was significant in six. I can't. I thought I'd print everything out here. I guess not. Okay, go ahead, Cheryl. Uh, then the feeding knowledge, that this is a question that we developed to kind of see the view which the parents learn the content of the program. And this, we had a strong specs here. So the, um, you can see that it went way up from pretest to post-test. This is best practice feeding. So we had a bunch of different questions that assessed um, best practice feeding. For example, when parents show they enjoy new food and encourage their child to try the food. So we had a bunch of questions like that. Um, and you can see that they're, it went up from pre to post and stayed high uh, at the subsequent time points. They were, continued to be significant. And then we also had common misconceptions about feeding. And you can see those went down for the prevention group from pre to post test. Those are things like, um, if a child takes a bite of a food and spits it out, it's best not to serve that food again. So we had questions like that. Um, and you can see they went down and stayed down. And then child roles. So this was an understanding of the child roles and feeding. Um, this is actually from Ellen Satter, you know, the, the parent and the child roles. So the parents' roles is to, I'm not sure I can get all these right, but to, um, to provide children with healthy food to eat and then um, and to serve them to the child, the child's roles to, to determine how much they want to eat, if any. So we looked at their parents' understanding of the child roles, and you can see that went up um, from to post and it actually stayed significant. Presenting new foods. So this was, oh, this was about um, just as a multiple choice question about how many times you have to present a new food. Do you often have to present a new food? You know, that's unusual before the child will accept it. And you can see that um, the control uh, parents didn't change over time, the uh, uh, prevention program. Parents went up and stayed about the same. Okay, then this is efficacy for feeding at home. So this is um, the degree to which the mothers felt like they had, um, um, were confident about their ability to, no, to, um, to both, um, well, to try new foods, um, to get their child to eat enough at home, to prevent their child from overeating at home, and to eat healthy foods at home. So you can see this went up from pre to post for the prevention, and it remained significant over time. The controls didn't change significantly. Okay, then uh, these were the measures we were most excited about because we had you know, these task measures um, for the children. And uh, let's go to the first one. Actually, I think we have. <laughs> We found very little. This was this was a huge disappointment because my poor graduate students spent so much time collecting data on these kids and trying, you know, these conversation trials are complex to weighing all the food and just it's crazy. Um, we uh, we found no effects. So, so significant, you know, the, the main way we looked for condition of, uh, effects of the program was to find a significant condition by time interaction. So the idea is that 
the two conditions show different patterns of change over time. And um, we found no effects for any of the measures that are listed here, the compensation trials, the EDS to hunger, the tasting panel, and the child's eating behavior questionnaire. Um, the compensation trials, and Susan Johnson had warned us about this, there's huge individual differences in, in how children respond to this task. And a lot of situational variables seem to play a role as well. And so, um, you know, because how much they're going to eat on a given day is influenced by so many factors. And we're, we're just comparing two meals to each other. And the ideal would be best to give them, you know, five meals without a pro, pre, uh, without um, you know, preload and five meals with one. Um, but we had one of each. So I think it's not very, it wasn't stable over time. That was surprising to us, but no one actually had looked at that before in the literature. So that's probably why you found nothing there. Eating the essence of hunger was stable over time. Um, but it may not be a good measure for children and families with low incomes. I mean, these children got so excited when they had the chance to eat all these sweets, unlimited supply of sweets. It's kind of like Halloween, you know? So um, that we may have had a problem there that it just wasn't a very sensitive measure. You know, that all kids were eating more than they, they typically would. Um, the tasting panel, that really surprised us um, because we, you know, we did a lot of research suggests that multiple exposures should lead to greater trying of the foods. But the problem is, it's not really a problem. It was a problem for us. All the kids ate everything. <laughs> and we, I don't know, we're, we're kind of feeling like in, in um, Head Start, you know, and these, these, um, these kids all came from really childhood kinds of programs and they had, were really good at getting kids to try new foods in these programs. So I think, and parents weren't even aware of that. Lots of parents say, he won't do this or that. And, and the kids, the teachers say, oh, he does it all the time, you know? So unfortunately it didn't give us enough variance to work with, as you can see, the tasting rates range from 90 to 97%. So you just can't, there's nothing to explain there. And then the child's eating behavior questionnaire, um, really very well validated measure, although I don't know of any studies actually showing the results of experimental interventions infecting children's responses. Some people see this more as a, maybe a trait-like kind of measure of individual differences in eating and um, may interact with the program, but it may not be changed. For you. And it certainly wasn't for us. So we had, yeah, I'll go to the next slide, Cheryl. I think we had one effect that, um, but only pre to post. So, so it wasn't significant. Um, this is a mother's reports of the child's trying fruits and vegetables. Um, because we did find a pre post effect, we I, you know, went and then ran some simple mean effects analysis just to see if you go to the next slide. You can see that, in fact, you know, we did have an increase in the number of vegetables tried. We have no effect for fruits, but in terms of vegetables tried, um, there was an increase from pre-test to post-test that stayed high for the um, prevention group. Um, the, uh, I think the, yeah, the, at six months, the, um, the difference between the two groups was 0.06 at the 0.06 level, and then at even though it looks big, uh, at 12 months, it was not significant. It was about 0.10 or something like that. So what was happening is, is as you can see, that control mothers started to give their, um, even though it was not significant, it seemed like there's a slight rise maybe. And, um, you know, because as kids get older, they're going to give them more food. So uh, anyway, yeah, so the effect was significant at pre to post. Maybe we had a larger sample, we might have found something, but um, it wasn't significant at 12 months. And it was 0.06 at, at six months. Okay. Um, this was the exciting, the, 
the, the finding we were most enthusiastic about was, you know, um, that uh, we did find effects on children's weight status, and that was the purpose of the study, obviously. Um, we couldn't use BMI scores, so it was so highly correlated over time. You can see pretest to six months was 0 0.94, 0 0.92. You know, you can see that how highly correlated um, BMI. But if you look at changes in weight status categories, and we use these multinomial logistic regressions, um, at six months, we found no effect. At 12 months, um, prevention children are less likely to have overweight or obesity, and that was highly significant, as you can see. And I, you know, I can't, but the next slide shows a, a chart and it show changes in categories over time. So it's a little confusing to look at initially, but what, what we're doing is we're looking at changes from pretest to 12 months. And so, and, you know, looking at the percentage of children that did the various changes. And so if you look along the, the x-axis, the first one is healthy to overweight. So um, if you look at the percentage of children that change from the healthy weight state, and we're using the CDC guidelines in terms of what's healthy, you know, like, you know, 85% or less, um, that in terms of their BMIZ. Um, you can see that the prevention group, um, very few children, looks like about what, 2% went from healthy to overweight uh, over those 12 months, whereas 15% um, of the um, control kids did. Um, no one in the sample over a year went from healthy to obese. You know, it seems like it's going to be a process. It's gradual, right? Um, the next one is overweight to obese. You can see again, a lot more kids in the control group went from overweight to obese, you know, 20% versus 10% for the uh, prevention. And so these, so the first set of bars are sort of children moving into higher status, uh, weight status categories, kind of unhealthy changes. And then the next two bars are for more healthy changes. So it's going from overwhelmed to healthy and obese to overweight. And you can see in both cases, um, the prevention was much more likely to do that than the controls. And, and again, nobody went from obese to healthy in 12 months. It's a more gradual process. So this was, you know, and this and that, you know, these percentages don't take into account, you know, the, the nesting and all that stuff that the, the, um, the logistic regressions did. So, um, so this is significant, highly significant effect. Basically, children in the program um, were less likely to, uh, to move into higher weight status categories and, and more likely to move into more healthy ones. Okay. So um, com considerable influence um, for the program on knowledge, behaviors, and weight status, very little effects on child eating behavior. Uh, as I said, the strong effects were for feeding knowledge. You know, for five or six measures, we found effects. They were all sustained over 12 months. Um, you know, prevention mothers showed a better understanding of best practices, child roles, and importance of repeating presenting new foods. Um, they were less likely to hold you know, common misconceptions about feeding. And as a result of the program, they reported greater efficacy in feeding their child at home. Uh, the only knowledge measure not showing was away feeding, like how confident that your child will not be able to eat when away from home or how confident that your child um, will not uh, eat healthy foods when away from home. What's the next slide? I can't remember if I put reasons in that one or not. I think you did. Oh, there it is. Okay, go ahead with the bullets. <laughs> okay, so 
yeah, this program focused mostly on feeding children at home, although the two examples Cheryl showed were of the outside influence. So there was only one class we did that. Um, and children, parents certainly have less and less control of their child feed outside of the home. Um, best, feed, uh, let's see, feeding practices. So uh, there were five of 16, so it wasn't across the board, but the ones that were that we found effects were in fact the things that we were teaching the parents, encouraging exploration of new foods, repeating, presenting them repeated on different occasions, serving measuring portions, responding to children's fullness cues, and involving the um, child in food preparation. Uh, the, the ones that disappeared, you know, we found pre-post, but then we didn't find it six and 12 months um, to involve potentially problematic feeding behaviors, use of food as a reward and pressure to eat. Uh, in both cases, um, controls show a decrease over time, yielding non-significant differences at six and 12 months. I think if you hit the button, sure, I'll get some more. Yeah, so possible reasons. It's easier to learn new skills and reverse old habits. We all know that. Um, that, uh, you know, Pressure to eat, using food as a reward, those work pretty well in terms of when you see the immediate effect on the child's behavior. And so it could be mothers may be less likely to want to give those up. Um, although in the long term, they may not be very good for the children. Um, also, as children got older, they become less picky about what they eat with age. We've done lots of observations of family meals. And, you know, and, and that's the main conflict at family meals is children don't need something. And um, and this becomes less likely as kids, children get older and eat more things. So maybe you don't need the high pressure strategies as often as kids get older. Uh, yeah, the, the, so it, there were about half the feeding behaviors. It didn't have any effects on feeding practices, sorry. Um, mostly were structure measures. I want to give us time for questions, so I'll go into it. But, but they're mostly about structure, which we didn't focus on as much. And there are no effects, effects, like I said, for a couple of these high control measures. Um, structure not primary focus of the program. Because of work families, especially uh, schedules and things, especially in low-income families, I mean, they often have multiple jobs or, you know, they're working nights, different, you know, schedules. You know, it's, it's harder to sort of schedule and have those family meals. So, um, so in terms of creating some of the structure, it might be hard to do given other factors beyond the parents' control. Um, for restriction and high pressure practices, you know, on the one hand, they want to encourage your children to consume healthy foods, but we're also telling them not to use high pressure practices. And, you know, a lot of parents probably are a little frustrated. Well, how do I do that? <laughs> I don't need it, you know? So that, that maybe that's why those didn't change. Um, we only had a limited impact on the, the feeding styles increased um, uninvolved feeding from pretest to post-test, but there was no significant difference at six and 12 months. Um, we did find that responsiveness um, increased from pretest to post-test. Oh, so, okay, so it, it became non-significant 12 months. Yeah, that's what I couldn't remember. So yeah, by 12 months, that difference went away, but it's largely because parents were using more child-centered uh, approaches as their children got older, which is, Probably because the children are more like cooperating at the table. Hard to know. Um, all right, next one. Uh, yeah, so it didn't, so we led to specific changes in practices, but not maybe their overall approach to feeding. Um, they may be more difficult to change in feeding practices, styles, more practices. 
Uh, as we said, only one effect on child eating behavior, number of vegetables trial, this wasn't significant 12 months uh, due to increase of control, um, no effects on all these other things. Um, next slide. Um, so despite the effects on child eating behavior, we did show an effect on child weight status, but we weren't able to identify what were the changes in eating behavior that accounted for those programs. Um, yeah, I talked about some of the problems with these the child measures earlier. These were the most well-validated measures in the literature at the time, and, and I still haven't seen anything else that's new that's going to work better. So um, this is clearly an area that we need to work on as, as researchers to study children's eating. You know, light studies should be considered light of limitations, only two locations. Probably the only study in history done in Houston, Texas, and Pasco, Washington. I can't remember these two. <laughs> um, but, you know, we can't generalize this, obviously, to all first-generation Hispanic moms. Um, the uh, feeding measures are self-report. We've done self-reports and observations. Are, you know, self-reports actually do correlate somewhat with the observations, but not very high correlation. So it'd be nice to have multiple measures. We, we tried to use multiple methods, you know, as much as we could, but we didn't have the resources to observe them feeding their children. Um, and then, like I say, we, we found effects on child weight status, but we couldn't identify the mediating variables that accounted for these effects. Okay, so I'm sure I want... Okay, sure. Um, so there, we need to acknowledge a number of uh, people and our funding. Brenda Hogden did all of our videotapes and there were a number of them uh, associated with SEEDS. I encourage you, um, when you get this, I think that you um, have a copy of these slides. See if you can listen to um, our two videos from uh, video nine, because they're really quite engaging and funny and helpful. Um, Yuri was a student who did our um, data collection here um, in Houston, Anna Maria. Uh, a colleague of Tom's in Washington State, who's an extension person. Andrea was our, um, and Nilda, um, thank you. Uh, Andrea and Nilda were our coordinators here, and Maria is my assistant who helps just across the board with everything, the funding, and then also my Chris uh, funding. Uh, I'm at a USDA facility, so I do get uh, some Chris money helped with this. That's it. Maybe we're open for questions now. Thank you so much. It has been great to learn about this program. Uh, if you have questions, please put those in the question and answer box. Uh, the first question we have is for the food preference questionnaire, how did you decide on which foods to include on the questionnaire? Were these the same foods that children were exposed to during the sessions? Um, not necessarily. That uh, came from Susan Johnson, who is a nutritionist, was a co-investigator, and she was also a student of Leanne Burgess, so she had access to a number of the measures used, um, like for the tasting method, etc. So that measure has been used repeatedly. It's an older measure uh, by Sullivan, but um, we didn't design it so that the foods that were introduced were on there. It was just a general list of 100 foods that uh, were appropriate for preschoolers. Okay. Thank you. And then another question I had. Um, so I, I thought it was interesting that you said that the kids tried everything, even though the parents didn't think they would. Um, and then you mentioned that this was an early childhood population where it sounds like the early childhood providers are doing a good job of getting kids to try new foods. Um, do you think, or is there anything in the literature that this would 
continue as kids get older and they're no longer in those early childhood programs? I don't know. I, I, I would assume that given the way Head Start and these early programs, Head Start, um, at least in Houston, provides food, breakfast, lunch, and a snack, a couple of snacks. So these kids are used to having foods there and they're encouraged to try them. Whether this continues on, I would assume, um, based on the literature that if they've been introduced and they're eating it, they're going to be less nervous about eating it in the future. Tom, do you, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, because, you know, food preferences, a lot of them really developed during those early preschool years. So, you know, I, I would think as long as parents continue to provide those kinds, I mean, part of the problem is, is a lot of parents don't provide those kinds of foods at home and these kids only get exposure to them and, and yet start. It's just a lot of vegetables and things. So, or, so, or maybe in elementary school as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah although you have the school lunchroom. <laughs> the vegetables often aren't that great, but, you know, it's just changed. Um, yeah, so I think you would hope maybe some effects, but I think you know really need to be supported at home to to um, probably have lasting effects for most kids. Another question: Were you able to examine the impact of single versus two parent households on your outcomes of interest and or the impact of food program utilization? Um, um, I can't remember what the yeah we didn't we didn't look at that variable. Um, there are a lot of demographic variables, so we didn't look at that as a moderate. We looked at um, some other variables. Uh, we didn't have a large, well, we did have, do you remember? I think 60%, what was the, um, yeah, we didn't look at that. That's a really good um, question and it's something we should, should look at. But um, yeah, because 60, yeah, like about, about, about a third were not married, yeah. So um, part of the thing is, is that a lot of these people um, were undocumented, um, you know, immigrants from Mexico, and often they don't get married because that would be a way the government can kind of find them. So a lot, a lot of them were living with partners, um, even though they weren't married. So I mean, I don't, I don't know how many single parents we had in terms of, you know, tradition, a single mom raising a kid by their themselves, but we didn't look at that point. That's something we should look at in our data. Okay, thank you. And then just another question, what advice would you give to someone wanting to do similar research? Daryl? That's interesting. Um, I don't know, we were, um, one thing I think that um, as Tom mentioned about our child eating behavior um, measures, that it would be helpful, I guess, if we found measures that were better at ex uh, accessing these child eating behaviors in these families with low incomes. Uh, most of these measures were developed um, on middle-class whites. Um, and so it's unclear that somehow they're not working as well for our families here. I think we do need to find out what it is that happened uh, in the, uh, you know, with children's eating that produced uh, the long-term effects on uh, the child weight status. But yeah, better measures of child eating. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, that, you know, the, the, the hard part, of course, is that, you know, we, we had, this is a, a pretty big USDA grant. So we had the resources to develop the videotapes, to do all these multiple, you have teams of people go out and collect all these data from the kids and the families and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't find anything for the child measures. So, um, and it seems like 
in terms of doing interventions, um, I mean, basically the most important thing really, because it's what we're doing, well, that's necessarily true. I mean, this was, our focus was on obesity prevention, you know. Um, what's nice about obesity prevention is that, you know, it's easy to measure, to get the child's height and weight. So if you have limited resources, you have to kind of decide how are you going to, you know, you spend your time on it. I think that, because a lot of states don't actually collect data on, on you know, height and weight. And I think that's really important to do that. Um, but you have to kind of balance. So it seems like on the one hand, we need people doing research and kind of a development shows that these measures that are more sensitive individual differences and uh, maybe short-term interventions to see if you can influence those things. But in terms of a large scale kind of obesity prevention study, um, you know, I think that focusing on child weight status may be enough, you know, given you're gonna have limited resources. On the other hand, you know, your, your emphasis may be more on trying you know, increasing the quality of the child's, you know, dietary intake. And so I think then you might need other kinds, because we had, you know, food frequency questionnaires. I mean, it'd be nice to, you know, to use like 24-hour recalls and other kinds of more intensive measures of, um, of food intake as well. Although our focus is more on feeding than on diet, you know. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but I think, you know, yeah. I, I should However, I did want to mention we do, uh, Tom and I are involved with a, a, a new smaller study, USDA study, where we are doing this um, similar um, prevention program uh, in and around Houston, and we are offering uh, food. So for one of the, the groups, they are actually getting food RX, our food will be delivered to the family, which will be interesting to see if that makes a difference um, in how they uh, change the children's diet, if they actually have access to food. food. I look forward to seeing what you find. Yes. So one more question um, from one of our attendees. Did you measure food security among families in the study and might white changes be related to limited access to food? Good point. I don't think we did the food insecurity in this study. Do you remember, Tom, we did it in- No, we usually do. Um, so a large portion would be food insecure given the nature of these populations. Um, but we are measuring that in the new study. For sure. Yeah, all good. Yeah. We somehow missed, we, we, we bombarded them. <laughs> Everybody with measures, makes mistakes. So I guess yeah. we <laughs> probably would have helped if we had had a food insecurity. And that's the other thing is that, you know, people, I mean, people say, oh, how can you, all this participant burden, you're asking people to do so many things. Um, you know, parents cooperate. I mean, it could help that we were paying them for the assessments, but if you really want high quality data, if you can figure out some way to pay your uh, participants for your assessments, you can get, I mean, it was really high quality data as well. But I guess, yeah, the food insecurity, that, that's an important um, factor, obviously, in, in this and any population. So, um, but we didn't in this study. I'm glad we did in the, the new one, Cheryl. Yep, we did on the new one, yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for sharing your, your work with us. I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure everyone joining us did. At this point, I can hand everything back to Rachel. Yes, thank you very much. Um, just a reminder, we have six sessions in the fall journal club. Um, so there'll actually be a little bit of a break. We'll come back on um, October 17th for the next session. Um, and remember all those will be listed on the SNEB website uh, for you to register. Um, watch for a short 
survey when I close the webinar. We appreciate your feedback. And then uh, you'll receive your CEU certificate, the follow-up material, and I'll try to make sure we include those PowerPoints so you can watch the videos. They were very cute because I got to hear them from my side. <laughs> Sorry that those didn't come through. Um, and then just, just a reminder that we are um, accepting program proposals for the 2023 SNEB conference, which will be in Washington, D.C. next July. And that program deadline is the end of October. Uh, so please watch for that notification. Oh, and I'll, since it's this week, I'll encourage everyone to uh, watch the White House conference. Um, SNEB was invited to attend and Dr. Sarah El-Nakib will be attending on our behalf. So we're uh, very excited for her participation. But um, if everyone can watch, we'll plan some follow-up um, discussions uh, about uh, the pillars in the, of that conference. So we will see you back for your next Journal Club. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks.